Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. So hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mindful Medical Learner podcast. I'm your host, Arshi Kafash, fourth year medical student here at McGill, and I'm being joined by my co-host, Zoe O'Neill, founder of the podcast and third year medical student at McGill University. Our guest today is Dr. Soham Reg. He's a um, geriatric psychiatrist and assistant professor at the Jewish General Hospital and Lady Davis Institute since 2017. One of his many re- research uh, areas of research includes um, mind-body interventions, such as mindfulness and meditation. He's also, uh, he's also been an avid meditator himself for many years now. Dr. Reg, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So... Um, <clears throat> You know, the main reason why I wanted to originally have you on this show was because, you know, I feel like mindfulness is very much a, uh, I guess you could say that it's a topic that's very in nowadays, but it, it, it's, it's pretty difficult, at least in my experience, to come across people who are as dedicated to the craft as you are. So I thought it would be really interesting to have you on just so we can kind of learn a thing or two from you. Sure. I mean, I guess it'll, it'll help to kind of get a bit of context. So I, uh, like you said, I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. I see older people and I work clinically about one day a week. I do, I do research the rest of the time. The lab is like now about 14 full-time people. So it's, it's a bit of a handful. And aside from that, is the irony, you know, this, you know, a human being is born, right? And, and then, you know, we get titles and we get, you know, accomplishments and all this BS, right? The funny thing is, like, you know, the clinician's scientist shtick, and then having the, you know, the lab and everything's, you know, doing all these clinical trials of mindfulness, and then now we have, you know, two, po- you know, two postdocs. One is doing like tech. We have a lot of like VR, even robots, and then this other person is interested in psychedelics. But all of this, right? So I'm doing all this, and I guess the idea initially was like I was doing mindfulness, or I was. Since 10 years, I was doing some meditation. Uh, there was Dr. Nair at the Douglas who said, you know, do breath meditation 15 minutes a day. And then, and then so I was doing that and then, you know, slowly built my way to about an hour and a half a day. And then, um, then I started doing Vipassana, which is, uh, you, know, you go on these 10-day retreats and then uh, you practice. Usually they tell you practice an hour a day in, in the morning, hour in the evening. And so I was doing that for the last five years. And what's really funny is that since I started that, I, was, I would go to my wife and say, you know, say the word and I'll go to a cave. Instead of writing grants and trying to feed people and trying to conquer the world. I was in Toronto at the time, finishing fellowship. I was going to come back here to my assistant prof uh, and Jerry's psych job. Very excited. And yet here I am five years later. 35 and uh yeah i mean i'm not i'm not at liberty to say when i'm retiring the time is pretty soon i realize even actually i've sent a lot of my colleagues and friends to vipassana or and and we've taught a lot of people mindfulness in these programs right ultimately you can't really you can't really spread the gospel just doesn't work that way what do you mean when you say we we can't we can't teach people this stuff we can't quote unquote spread the gospel one is because they want things 
they want to see things, they want to taste things, or more concretely, you know, people want money, they want sex, they want family, they want this, they want, they all want something. Okay. Second thing is they're rolling in thoughts, human beings constantly in thoughts. So how can you be in this present moment? And so this, that's the issue. So people don't experience day to day, every moment being here. That's the whole point of this meditation. Why do I meditate? So I can avoid life? No, it's so I can actually really experience life. Stop being afraid of it and be here. And so, because the whole point is to transform. The point is always be learning more. Always question yourself. Be here. Be fresh. If you're really authentically doing mindfulness breath, you're aware of this moment as it is. Whatever you're experiencing in the body and the mind, you're experiencing it. But in addition to that, you're experiencing the, the sensations on the body with equanimity. So a lot of people develop awareness, but they don't develop equanimity. Awareness is a double-edged sword. If you're aware of something, but then you develop a ton of attachment, I like this, right? Or you're the opposite, I hate this. You're actually reinforcing a habit pattern that is already causing you misery. So you're learning at a very deep level how to be aware and equanimous constantly. And so, first of all, if you're going to spread something, you have to be something. And no one is there. No one has really transformed. Everyone is like, yes, I'll charge $500 for some. I'm going to teach you MBCT. Give me your money. I mean, you just messed it up. So, okay, so you charge 500 bucks. So someone can do some mindfulness. And then, and then this person doesn't actually practice mindfulness. They probably don't. And then what are you going to learn? And then even if they do practice but then what about your real life? Okay, your wife just swore at you. Uh, your, your child hates you. Your boss has said you're fired. You know, how do you deal with life? Are you really transformed? Are you really equanimous? Do you really accept life as it is? Is every moment filled with joy, love, compassion, peace, truth? You have to develop it. For if you go deep into the mindfulness, right, into the tradition, but every single person has to choose on their own. Can you go deep? You know, I tried it, right? I have a whole research career, kind of like, okay, let's, let's see if we can reduce symptoms. But, you know, in medicine, we get a bunch, you get a degree. This is great, wonderful, you got the degree. Okay? And then you get, oh, you get another degree. And then, okay, then you pontificate. And you're the expert. The thing is, we're not healed. We're not actually whole. We're not actually peaceful. I'm just curious now, do you think that working as a physician is incompatible with having a truly spiritual life? To some extent. So you can, you can practice spiritual life to some extent. In the healing profession, there's a reason why, why people cannot stay in their job when, sh when shit hits the fan. It's because the job does not sustain us. The the everyday work, the way we do our lives. And, you know, as a physician, you see, you know, you see it. There is something to medicine. I mean, there is something to, someone is really sick and you treat them. Someone needs the surgery, you give them surgery. So you can, you can do that. But at a deeper level, I mean, it depends what you want. Most people are like, okay, I want my car. I want my house. I want my, okay, let me have my, my boyfriend, husband. So you have everything, but you have it and you have a surface life you know if you're gonna have money in your pocket and stability and worldly success 
we're in different circumstances. I'm giving you the extreme circumstance. Someone is saying, I want to practice five or 10 minutes of meditation. What's the motivation? Usually the motivation is I want to feel good. But basically, you know, if you want things, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're creating things, we're making the world a better place. But we're getting caught up in ideas. Whose idea was this? Isn't, isn't the point of life to be here, to be here now? But here I am running to this idea, doing this, making this happen. That's the opposite of peace. And in medicine, we seem to thrive on that. How can we heal anybody if we're just, if we're not in peace? So the construct, the whole construct of medicine is think we run around we, and, and what's the reward? We kind of med school residency. Then at the end of that, believe it or not, <laughs> it doesn't get that much better. It's definitely something that I've thought about and reflected on before. And this idea that you're talking about in medicine in particular, where we're just constantly striving and looking forward and we're kind of leaning into the future. And, and we really spend a lot of our time leaning forward. That's definitely true. So I think, Zoe, what the, the thing that would comfort everybody today is if I said, you could hold on to one and you can hold on to the other. But I think that's probably what most of the speakers who you will interview will tell you. They'll kind of say, yes, you can have messages. And there are ways to do that, right? So you, you have a daily meditation practice. My suggestion is at least 15 minutes a day. It will train you, right? And then slowly build up. And same amount every day. And it depends what kind of meditation practice. There are so many types of spiritual practice. The main thing, I mean, if you do mindfulness, you're just aware of the breath is a nice practice to begin with. And, and just you, you know, mind wanders, but then you gently bring it back and you have a gentle smile. If you wander, it's okay. You're learning how to also be equanimous. You have compassion and you're just aware of the breath. And you basically that, that helps you just learn how to stay in this moment, not get carried away. And and then slowly build a larger practice. And if you feel like it, you know, try to do one of these longer term retreats. Vipassana is one of them. There are many places. If you if you go do serious practice like that, my suggestion to people is then go get serious in one tradition. You know, don't shop around. If you find this meditation practice, that one works, that one works. Or some people do prayer, some people do Tai Chi, some people do yoga. There's so many things, right? But there's two things to consider. One is if you're gonna do a practice, you know, do one practice, find something that really suits you and do it very deeply. Because then you'll get real benefit, real transformation. The second thing also is reflect as you're practicing some sort of spiritual practice, am I becoming more attached? You know, in my everyday life, am I, am I actually becoming a better person? Am I just feeling good or am I becoming a better person? Because the point isn't just to feel good. The point is actually to be a better person. Uh, someone who's less attached, someone who's more peaceful, more joyful. So if your practice is making you more attached and more, okay, so fine, you might have these big visions when you go into meditation, or you might have, you might feel really peaceful while you're meditating. But if the rest of your life you're, Things are not going well. Like you notice that you're more, you're not, you're less kind of a person. Then consider maybe this, maybe it's not the right practice. Um, but it's for everyone to decide what that is. So there is a way to live householder life, but 
but it's up to everyone to decide you know what's right for them and what what they actually think they're going to achieve if in your heart i have to be a doctor then be a doctor is good but ask yourself every moment am i really being a doctor am i just saying i'm a doctor or am i actually a doctor and what is a doctor am i really at peace am i just pretending to be at peace how did you reach this point i'm trying to understand like were you were, were you always like this even before meditation you can have a lot of people in fact a lot of people would do mindfulness or a lot of people will do even a course like vipassana if you do 10 day course it's a big deal right for even somebody to take 10 days off is a big deal and you have very variable results people will not you know come to the same conclusion some people would just stop meditating the minute they get out of there it's like i am free right their right. definition of freedom is a bit different than mine so <laughs> i think it's a combination and different people have different amount of kind of affinity to spiritual life and some people it's like a light switch it's just at a particular moment in their life they happen to come across a practice and then poof i can tell you with almost utmost certainty what is the purpose of human life there is but one purpose in human life constantly be here be aware of what is going on and simultaneously be aware of the bodily sensations and be equanimous be peaceful establish constantly here this is where you are be peaceful this is the whole point of life the human life and if you miss that you miss life may as well not have any I have a question about how you reconcile your deep understanding and appreciation of this practice and being with the truth of the way that things are and then also studying it in a lab in this kind of artificial kind of environment you know a lot of mindfulness research is very short interventions with novice meditators and we're trying to like pull something out of it and show something at the end of the day and there's a in, within that whole process there is this attachment to results attachment to career i'm curious about how you reconcile those two things yeah a wonderful question So when I was starting my career I was obviously attached and I had some family members who were in medicine and I kind of liked them some of them were actually they were legit they were they had their heart really really in the right place I had this naive thing as a kid I want to help people and my parents said this is what you do to help people. okay there was attachment though attached to this idea this identity attached to hey I'm going to help people attached to hey my parents will actually like me at residency actually I applied to a bunch of internal med programs and McGill psychiatry and I thought I wasn't going to match anywhere actually because uh, actually McGill psychiatry was pretty competitive there's like uh, 72 people interviewed and eight spots I'm like I only did one elective I got like meets expect before they had meets expectations <laughs> I'm not going to match anywhere but uh, I did by miracle so yeah I tested all these things and then I think the main motivator to me was I wanted living one healthy but and then you know and then I also wanted to I guess part of me wanted to do cool things so then I ended up doing research and and doing a lot of it uh, really in residency and I happened to really love research it was different it was like a hobby it was actually the thing that probably kept me sane during residency because 
and the rest of residency is really prescribed. And I'm, I'm, I used to be a DJ, a uh, trans DJ at Concordia's Bar. Uh, you know, I used to play chess, I used to do painting. I was very creative. So this was a good creative outlet. But, but yeah, to establish a research career is a lot of work. And so you would ask, so then this is a contradiction, right? I'm doing, you know, mindfulness research. And I think near the end of, you know, let's say fellowship, then that's when I started doing, I mean, I was doing meditation maybe for four or five years by that time, but I was like, oh, there's this thing called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. What if I can help my patients with this stuff? Because I know mindfulness can be helpful. And it's almost like a Trojan horse of sorts. I mean, in that the only way that human beings believe something works is if it's, there's, a, there's science behind it. Our science is quite weak. I mean, I'm saying this as somebody who's published like 100 papers and grant money and all <laughs> lab of 14 people. Sci science is very weak. It's, it's helpful. And I think empirical science helps us decide does something work or not. But I think we have a long way to go. There's other aspects of science. There's, I mean, when someone becomes like a mystic and they, you know, they investigate what's going on inside them, that's another form of truth. There's deep truth within us. So there's, there's many other truths that we need to also examine. But I think that was the main motivation to doing mindfulness research. Because actually I was doing, I was doing stuff on lithium and kidney disease and like stuff that was, I was told by a lot of people, do something biological, that's going to get funded. And it was kind of true, but it was ironic. It was a timing thing. I, I actually never thought I would get funded to do mindfulness research. But then like to get a CIHR to do transcendental meditation, you'd never imagine this. So I did not think my career would go this way. And I think in a way, I never thought I would do meditation, never thought I'd do research. I never thought I'd be a psychiatrist. And I think that is in a way, although I had a lot of attachment, which got me into a research career, how I've lived since then has been fun. You mentioned a lot about these meditation retreats and how you, you I mean, I know you recently left for 27 days. Can you kind of paint a picture of what those retreats are actually like? So there, there are all sorts of retreats. You can, so some people, like they do a, a kind of yoga and meditation retreat. Some people, so they do some moving practices, some sitting practices. There's some guidance. There's some this and that. So that's one kind of retreat. And maybe you learn a bit. You learn about it by some practices. So that's not bad. What, what I noticed is you can go to such a retreat, but then within a couple of months, you're back to where you started. So, that's, so that was my experience of that. So then about five years back, I did one of these 10-day retreats. And, and so there are different types of traditions, quote unquote Buddhist traditions. You have like Zen, you have um, Tibetan retreats, and, and they will have different ways of teaching things. In Vipassana, it's not like so strictly speaking, he doesn't call it Buddhist. Basically, it's secular in that anyone can join, regardless of their faith. To some extent, that influences the technique. There's something called the discourse of, the, uh, of, of awareness, the, the cultivating awareness. Uh, in fact, a lot of the mindfulness practices you see in different traditions are based on that that uh, discourse. So that's probably the scriptural basis. The main thing is actually the practice. There were a bunch of monks who, um, uh, actually only two monks were sent to Burma. And the story goes is those monks preserved the original uh, practice of meditation of the Buddha. Now, of course, 2,500 years have passed. I leave that up to your own imagination. but 
what's beautiful is that when you go to this retreat, all the teaching they say would would go back to the, the Buddha, but it's basically you go there and, and you learn how to practice mindfulness meditation of the breath and the body. First three and a half days, you're aware of the breath. And the last seven days, with that very strong one-pointed awareness, you're aware of the body. Now, both of these things rely on a basis, like what we talked about, morality. So you practice the five precepts. You, you don't harm anyone. And what's nice about retreat, and retreat, with, again, with the wholesome base, right? So you practice some form of morality. So you practice something like that for 10 days uh, for an extended period. So you go very deep into your mind. In this particular type of meditation, you're cultivating awareness and equanimity in equal amounts. Ultimately, if you take somebody from any of the major traditions, like the Abrahamic traditions or the, the Eastern traditions, if somebody really does their, their spiritual practice to the highest level, ultimately all of these paths go are one path. In Vibhasha, they tell people, be aware of this moment as it is and be equanimous as it is, which is very hard. So you notice if you tell people to do breath meditation for five minutes, how many of them will stay with that breath for five minutes? Very hard. But, but the good news is over the 10 days, you actually get used to it and you gain more, you gain that one pointedness and then you can go very deep into awareness, very deep into equanimity. And so then a lot of stuff within you comes out. So actually it's worth saying, it's actually worth saying, if you have, let's say, if you're currently going through some deep depression or deep anxiety, or let's say you have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or let's say you have a severe personality disorder, or you've had, let's say you've had severe childhood trauma, or let's say um, you know, you've had severe substance use history, like recently. All those things, if you do one of these long-term retreats, may not be the right thing for you. Maybe to do something a bit more kind of less intense so for example i would say the main thing is to do something every day right so if you don't do a retreat the main thing if and there's no shame in that actually the real thing is the volition somebody has the real volition i want to transform i want to be peaceful and i want to i want others to be peaceful too and then and then you practice something every day that's probably more important than even going to the retreat but the retreats help support that. Similarly, the daily practice that you do sitting helps you with the, the moving practice of being in, in the everyday life. Yeah, I'm personally really happy to hear you say that last little bit, just because sometimes in uh, medical training, and particularly I find also with COVID, it's really hard to find 10 days. And with COVID, like there been a lot of online offerings, but I, I, I find it hard. It's not the same when you're not physically removing yourself in terms of the depth of awareness that you're able to access. But I'll let Archie, I know you were going to jump in. One question that I'm, I'm very curious about, especially when you reach these, uh, I mean, you were talking about reaching these like supreme depths of awareness, especially when you go on these long retreats. From, from what I understand from some of the research, there's some evidence that suggests that, you know, deep meditation suppresses activity in the default mode network, um, which is an area of the brain, which, uh, you know, gives us our self-referential thinking and our overall sense of self. Can you kind of paint a picture of what it's like when you reach that level? Then did you ever experience like ego dissolution during these long retreats? So, you know, 
experience is experience. So some people take a psychedelic and they dissolve their ego. The distinction is that you're fully, you know, you're with it. You're there. You're letting things unfold. The, the cool thing about if you really purify your mind, with, and that's the key, any spiritual practice, really the volition is to be a better person. And, and guess what? You're already that better person. So it's not like you don't have to strive to it. You're there. You just have to sit there. Sit. Just sit. You train your mind just to be here. And it's a constant training, even in your daily life. Like, so outside of your sitting, you train yourself to just be here. Then your whole life is, is magical. Your whole life can be that. So although, although going to on deep retreat, you can have these deep mystical experiences. You can also have like kind of scary experiences. Or you can also have like really mundane experiences. You can be really bored. You can. You can experience a lot of stuff. Actually, what you're learning, what, if you're really doing, if you do mindfulness practice at a very deep level, deep both in terms of retreat, but also deep in terms of everyday life, you're learning how not to get caught up on experience just just enjoy it all uh, it doesn't have to be special life doesn't have to be special we just have to learn how to how to be here and and but being here is not the only thing it's that i have to if i have to stress something and even in some of the retreats like i know some friends who go to the going kavipashana retreat and they get caught up because sometimes the instruction is work for your liberation, work hard. Work. Some people, if you though, when people go to the Vipassana center, people are really serious. They don't actually need to work hard. <laughs> people actually need to work less hard. Stop being neurotic. There's nothing to achieve. In life, there's actually nothing to achieve. And I think that sounds, that, that must sound like from left field for, for medicine. So we're told the whole life you've been trained to get to this point so you achieve something. And I'm telling you here, there's nothing to achieve. It must take a lot of courage to be letting go of all of these parts of the ego in some ways. I think as someone who's still so deeply attached uh, to all of these steps, in medicine yeah actually i guess i guess to finish the thought so basically we talked about selfishness as a core of the or of the issue the doctors are selfish they want business they want to be important right in fact in a way the doctor's selfishness has led them to a situation we're no longer leaders and managers of the healthcare system although we could have had that role we that was our birthright in a way in, in the healthcare system. And, and similarly, the healthcare system wants to minimize cost for good reason. Why should it cost too much? But the focus is on treatment. So you wait till someone gets sick. If you gave 10% of the budget and actually prevented healthcare issues, if you actually just stop trying to treat everything, if we accepted death as a society, if we just stop worrying so much, we could actually live a better life if we could and we could also say hey the root cause not just our selfishness but the selfishness of our industries too that it's one thing you know it's good to have new technologies they're very helpful like zoom you know covid vaccine these are good things but there's a balance between you know profit profit is really there for what to give jobs to people 
to give continued stability and and similarly like even for a doctor why do we need that much money we don't you know we just need continued stability we've lost the purpose of the thing if someone makes money and they give it all away they i mean ideally you give it all away that's the best but even if you give most of it away what you don't need you give to others then society will have enough when everyone has enough and money is just one thing we can give we can give our time we can give our love we can cultivate love we need space and time to have love so you see although on the surface doctors are helping the world we're actually in a way if we just continue the same way we practice medicine we practice blindly we just go and take a job we're not really practicing medicine the real medicine is for every human being to wake up and to really take care of themselves and to take care of yourself deeply is not to be on a smartphone all day it's not to be on on zoom all day it's not to be working all the time unnecessarily i mean it's one thing is if you know we have a farm and then if we ha- we need to eat so we need to you know get water from 2 you know 5 miles away then we have to work all the time but now we don't have to work all the time and we don't have to achieve and create money and get this item and that item right we don't need any of this what we need is what we need is now we need peace we have deep peace i guess what i'm saying is even as you think of yourself becoming doctors think about what it means to be a doctor a real doctor i would say a real doctor does not charge money right doesn't because healing is something whole is holy it's sacred and what is healing healing is really deep healing means the doctor has to be healed if you are not healed you are not fit to heal especially chronic disease you can say okay i can give penicillin for anti oh, great that's wonderful you can give covid vaccine okay but beyond that everything is chronic disease you cannot heal so i think that's that's what i would take home if if you can find that in this society the way you are living the way you are you are basically you are you are in there is a hierarchy human civilization has arc and you are at the pinnacle of this hierarchy and you have an opportunity if you want you have an opportunity to to blow the whole thing open and do something differently and actually help the people you can decide to have the surface life yes i'm a good person i'm helping everyone everything again or you can actually do it it is in your hands actually i tell the future generation of doctors if you're going to be a doctor do it right you know work you know work see patients in the way you would want to be seen dedicate half of your practice to prevention both directly helping people prevent but also developing new programs i mean it's unfortunate because we have been doctors have failed in their real what they're supposed to do so eventually tech companies will swoop in develop a bunch of surveillance programs and develop prevention for our whole humanity in in but in a sick way you know it'll it'll basically what tech does is prey on every type of tech even even mcdonald's on our selfishness we want things so basically it'll be like that we're going to get our we're going to get our nice vr stuff but we have to do some extras or we can't eat certain foods it's it's going to be kind of twisted like that i guess punchline is 
and don't take it at face value. Number one thing that number one thing is yes. If you're a real doctor, don't charge money. If you do charge money, give give it all away. Don't keep any for yourself. It's not wholesome. And especially if you if you teach mindfulness, don't, don't teach mindfulness and take money. It's 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 a very bad thing. And I guess be whole. Be truly whole. And really question the structure you're in and help the society develop real prevention. Even if it means outside of the system, it doesn't have to be within the system. I've tried in different ways within the system. We have we have this health telehealth program and other things. So as much as possible, I, <laughs> but you see the system is broken in many ways. We are broken. And unless we heal, and this, all these things I've said, they may sound, you know, they're not that outlandish. Then the main thing is we have to we have to transform. And it starts with us. And if every doctor doesn't do that, then what hope is there for the patient? In fact, we should hope for a day where there are no patients. We should hope for the day where we have no job. We should hope for to not be useful. Anyway, with that, I guess I'll leave you. Hope, hope I didn't break you too much. <laughs> Wish you good luck. Dr. Raj, thank you so much. Honestly, this was such a thought-provoking conversation, and I feel like we're probably going to have to have you on another time in the future to really consolidate all of this. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time from your busy schedule. We really, really, really appreciate it. I can only echo what Arshia said. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Wish you all the best. This has been another episode of Mindfulness in Medicine, a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at McGill University. Get show notes at themindfulmedicallearner.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or send us a message through the contact page on themindfulmedicallearner.com.